Super Talk Mississippi media production. This is Jack Hoffman. For nearly 31 years, Tico Steakhouse has been a staple for fine dining in Jackson, Mississippi. I would like to invite you to come experience our family tradition of our hospitality, sizzling steaks, and healthy poured beverages. East County Lime Road in Ridgeland, 601-956-1030. Today, it's an honor for me to have a local Lincoln County gentleman with us, Mr. Brad Barron, that many of you may know. Uh, works uh, here in Brookhaven and, and sees, seen around town by a lot of different folks. And uh, Brad, it's an honor, and, and I'm grateful for you having the time to come in and visit. Glad to be here today. Well, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about, first of all, your background. You're a, you're a Lincoln County boy. Where were you born, Brad? I was actually born in Louisiana, but I moved up here when I was like one year old. One year old, okay. Mm-hmm. So I've been here forever. So you are a Lincoln County boy, Absolutely. there's no doubt. Absolutely. And uh, you went to school where? Went to school at Boca Chitta all 12 years. All 12 years. And then to Colleen. And then to Colleen. And then to USM. And then to USM. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now you come from a, uh, uh, you've got several siblings. Yeah, it was a large family. It was six boys. Wow. Four of us joined the military, and the, the other two didn't. So, yeah, it was a huge family. Uh, no sisters. No sisters. And Probably was all- a good thing. Absolutely. <laughs> we was always involved around Brookhaven. We played ball all through the ranks, That's you know, right. coming up as kids, little league, pony league, senior league. Yeah. So yeah. we've been here forever. We're not going anywhere. You know, just like in, in so many cases, you're just another one of those youngsters whose roots go way back to the beginning of your life and the earliest years of your life and and uh, been a part of what takes place in a small town and in small town United States, small town Mississippi, which I wouldn't trade for anything. Oh, Absolutely. All right, so you graduated uh, from Bogachella High School, went on to junior college at that time, probably was mm-hmm. junior college, Yep. and uh, then on to USM, and you, and you get out and, and, and make the conscious decision to join the Army Reserves, and, and tell me a little bit about that and what your thinking was and why. Well, what we actually, you know, what I actually did was join out of high school because they had the Montgomery GI Bill. Right. Which, you know, our parents with six boys just couldn't afford to put us through school by themselves. And so with the GI Bill, it would put us through school. And so me, my twin brother, my younger brother, and that's what we did. We joined each of us as we come out of high school. Fantastic. The GI Bill, uh, of course, it goes way back to World War II to the veterans coming out there, but then Sonny Montgomery, absolutely, our, our Mississippi uh, representative that had so much uh, influence on veterans' affairs. And that's probably one of the main reasons people join the military now still is for the GI Absolutely, Bill. absolutely. Yeah. It, it's a great opportunity to have your schooling paid for. Um, so you get in, you get your education paid for, which is tremendous. And uh, But then... Little did you know, or little did any of us know, <laughs> that uh, in 1992, you guys would be called up and, and your unit activated. So you, you, But let's go back just a wee bit before we get into that. You were actually assigned to the 296th Transportation yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Unit here in the Reserve in Unit, Brookhaven. which is out here at Brookhaven right. at the, at the uh, airport. And... Uh, and tell us a little bit about the mission or the responsibility or the task that that unit had. We're a transportation unit, and so we are a field transportation unit. You know, they have street transportation units, but we're designed to haul fuel off-road anywhere they would need it in a, a war or any other type of environment. 
So that was that was the main, or did you like move heavy equipment as well, or mainly just fuel? It's mostly just fuel. Okay. You know, we can haul anywhere from like I think we had sixty fuel tankers that we could go anywhere at any given time. Goodness. You know, so it's like thirty thousand gallons of fuel we could haul in one trip. Wow. So naturally you had the responsibility of making sure all the equipment was working right you had to be able to have qualified drivers you had to be able to transport because you're not just transporting potatoes right a highly volatile right uh, you know dangerous right exactly that's right so you had to have some pretty pretty intensive training i'm sure to know how to handle this and do it right oh absolutely absolutely i mean something you really got to be careful with you can't you know no sparks around it you know Mm -hmm. the whole nine Mm -hmm. yards but yeah, we train. You train constantly, hoping you never have to go. But then, when you do have to go, it's sort of second nature. But as it seems, the world is constantly. The United States is becoming more and more, it seems, involved in things happening around All the world. All over so, the world. So, in 1991, things began to get bad in the Middle East, as it's been since Christ's time, and we've got Iraq invades invades Kuwait. Right. And we have Desert Shield and Desert Storm and. And you guys get drawn in, your unit's activated, and you're sent to Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Tell us a little bit about what took place as that all started to happen and what was going on out here at the 296. Well, at the 296, we were all informed that we were activated. Well, you was on activation. You know, you could be deployed at any given time. And so you start going through a whole process of getting all your paperwork and all this type of stuff ready. And then you finally get an actual date. This is the day you leave. But you don't actually leave to go overseas. You leave, we went, you go to a training base, and you sort of go through training for a couple weeks just to sort of get back up on everything before you go in country. And so we was given a date, and I forget which day it was, and we'd have to leave at like 6.30 that morning and drive to Savannah, Georgia. Mm. And so we went there. You know, it was was tough, you know, because you – leaving everybody, you know, you don't know what you're getting into. So we went to Savannah, and it wasn't bad, you know. And you do all your little trainings. You have to get your shots and everything else. You take classes on the type of places where you're going so you know what to expect when you get there. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, you know, you get a date, and they say, hey, you're leaving in the morning at, you know, 0600 or something like that. Well, tell us the situation about your dad. You were sharing that a moment ago. Uh, what all was going on as you were about to be sent out? Well, Dad had always had some problems with his heart, mm-hmm. and he had had open heart surgery once before. And just so happened, as we was getting ready to leave, he was back in the hospital. And so the when we got the day we had to leave, it was the day of his surgery. Goodness. He had four bypasses done. Goodness. And so the night before, we stayed at the hospital all night long just visiting you know, because he was awake and alert and all this and that. Sure. And then we left to be back here at 6 o'clock in the morning, and he was operated on at 8 o'clock in the morning. Goodness. You know, they offered us that we could have stayed, you know, for a week or so, but really was nothing we could do here. Sure. And so we never knew the outcome because, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. That's right. And stuff like that. So we didn't know the outcome until, oh, about a week later when we was in Savannah. Mm. You know, which it all worked well, but, yes. you know, poor mama. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was sending her. Now, now I don't know if I can't remember if we mentioned, but you you weren't the only Baron that was involved in this because you had two other brothers Absolutely. involved in this. My twin brother 
and my younger brother. So all of three of you so, were being activated and sent at the same time. So she lost three kids, you know, leaving at the same time. And, and, and so, the trauma of having to be She's there a for strong her husband. woman. I'm, I'm no doubt. With six <laughs> sons, that's no doubt about woman. that. <laughs> well, that's, that's just the way it is, though. When, mm-hmm. when your duty calls, you have to respond to well, it. Well, when you sign, there's always that possibility. That's what you train for. You don't train just to get paid and to mm-hmm. go to college. You know, you train to go to war. To serve. You know, and so a lot of people join and they don't realize that, but that's what you're training for. You know. Okay, so you, you're in Savannah, you're finishing up your training, and then you, then, then you get the word that you're headed to Saudi Arabia. You get the word that you're headed to Saudi Arabia. Like three or four days before, we drove all our equipment down to Jacksonville, Florida. We had to load it all up on, you know, the big cargo ships because it's like a 30-day it takes, you know, for the cargo ship to bring all your stuff over to Saudi Arabia. So we load that up, and then we get our deployment and so we load up on a it was actually a commercial plane right but it wasn't um there was no commercial like you didn't have stewardess or anything yeah. like that charter. you know it was just a charter it was a jet. charter right. you know and so you're sitting there and you don't know what you're getting involved in because you have to tote all your equipment in the seat with you on board so you have your rucksack your rifle i mean even your ammunition is all stuck up oh, underneath really? your okay. seat Interesting that you carry live ammunition. Okay. You know, and so now when we came back, we didn't. It was all carried on ship. But going, because you, theoretically, you never know what you're getting involved when you get out on the airport under foreign soil. That's right. Now, were you guys actually infantry trained as well? Yeah, they train you. You know, you're infantry trained on all the fighting techniques and Mm -hmm. this and that. You can shoot all the Mm -hmm. weapons and do whatever it takes because you have to to be able to defend yourself and protect yourself. Correct. Okay, well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll come back. We're, today we're talking with Mr. Brad Barron, a um, gentleman from Lincoln County, and uh, sharing his experiences in the Desert Storm conflict, and we'll be right back. Hey, I'm Steve Azar, and you never know who or what you'll hear when I spend a Mississippi minute with my friends. Just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no hurry, that's how life goes. Be sure to check out In a Mississippi Mississippi Minute with me, Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi, the Super Talk Mississippi app, and now available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Well, we're back today visiting with Mr. Brad Barron, Bogachita graduate and member, uh, former member of the 296 Transportation Group here, Reserve Army Reserve Unit here in Brookhaven. And uh, he's been talking about his experiences in, uh, in Desert Storm, the Desert Storm conflict back in the early 90s. Uh, so, Brad, you guys get sent to Saudi Arabia. Your, your tankers finally show up behind you and your equipment, and you guys are ready. And your main task is getting fuel uh, to whoever needs it. You know, it's, there's so much logistics and, and, and planning involved in anything, utilizing, oh, using heavy equipment, which mm-hmm. guzzles diesel fuel right. or gasoline whatever right. so you guys were constantly involved and you were you were really working very closely with uh with uh, ken powell who was the commander of your unit right over there because you you were actually his driver right so you were with him almost all the time all the time all the time <laughs> uh, probably could tell us some good stories about him but we won't go, we won't there. go there we won't go there <laughs> but uh you know your first 
I don't know how long you were there before the the the, the air strikes began, before the Allies began uh, uh, bombing the Iraqis, but uh, you guys were getting ready to be able to get fuel to wherever it right. was needed in whatever manner, no matter how much fuel it was. It could be thousands right. of gallons. Well, when we got there, you know, you're still two months away from the airstrikes. It's a lot of logistics. you got to get people in place. Mm-hmm. They have to be in place everywhere for your ground troops, your mm-hmm. tanks, you know, because you never know what's going to happen. So, exactly. you know, we had 10 or so people fueling everything that come off the port, everything that come off the ships. You know, as soon as they rode off the ship, we fueled them up. up. You know, we um, were at the air bases, you know, where people were flying in. We had to fuel the civilian planes, you know. So we were, you know, we were stretched out the whole time. And one of the deals was, is you, you know, you have one fuel that can literally run the whole battlefield. Hmm. It's the same, we called it JP4, which is our what, high-grade diesel. And that's what your planes use, but you can actually run it in any of your diesel trucks and so basically that's what we hauled we didn't right. really haul gas or right. straight diesel right you hauled the jet fuel jp4 what have you and you would just run it in your diesels you know okay so the airstrikes begin i believe it was sometime in uh in january of of 1991 maybe maybe even a little bit before that time the airstrikes began to uh prepare uh for the for the land attack right. by the marines and the army uh, and so much of the military now is mechanized, right? Which you know they used to say the infantry runs on its stomach, but right. the tank runs on that diesel. Uh, absolutely, and and that's where you guys were so important because absolutely. so much land was covered so quickly. You guys had to keep them from running out of fuel because then they were sitting oh, up. So the land, the the ground attack begins, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys were right up in the middle of it. Yeah, and what we did was, I mean, you ran 24 hours a day. I mean, there was, Mm. you know, you'd give breaks and people would get a couple hours sleep, but you had to keep, you know, the fuel going, you know, and so you slept in between trips and stuff like that, you know, and we'd have people spread out here and spread out there, you know, and like the night that the air war started, Mm -hmm. you know, it was real interesting. You knew it had started because you you could hear the planes, but then you could see the Scud missiles flying over. Wow. You know, and they would fly over normally. Right at dark each day, they would always shoot Scud missiles, and you would see them here and there. But most of the time, they would break up in midair. You know, there was very low quality. Technology was not yeah, quite there. And, and our Patriot defense systems were just they're spot on. You know, they just didn't miss. Incredible. You know, and so it got to where when you seen them, you just really didn't pay a lot of attention to it, you know. Well, I know that. Nobody in their wildest imagination thought the Desert Storm would, would, would go as quickly as it did. I've read some things that General Schwarzkopf wrote. You know, he, he was fearful of many, many casualties as it was. Thank God there, was, there were fewer, many fewer than anticipated. Right. Uh, and it happened so quickly. And, and the vehicles actually, the, the tanks, the half-tracks, the mechanized units moved so quickly they were covering so many miles. You guys right. probably were getting stretched, you know, too. You had to go were, further, too. They were so prepared, you know, and it was the ultimate, you know, the, well, the optimum 
battlefield environment. It's wide open. You can see everything. You're not really fighting in large cities, you know, for most of the right, fight. Right. Other like Afghanistan okay. where they're in mountainous terrain and you Just can't really see. Things, you know, yeah. you're in the wide open flat desert. There's really not a better place to fight, you know, and when you have your tanks and stuff like that, they can move. Now you, you, know? you the, the ground war only lasted two or three months if I remember correctly right. roughly. And and then you guys are keeping up with the with the mechanized right, you know, units, and and then they pushed into Kuwait. Right, and you guys are going into Kuwait. Right, too. the the night they pushed into Kuwait, we were or some of us was up at a base. We were about oh five miles from the line where they pushed into because we had to. Our people had to be up there to follow them. Absolutely. you know, with fuel. You know, we would get a call and they would say, "Hey, you know, we're going to need fuel at this certain point." At this time, say twenty thousand gallons, and you you know you might be like, hey, well they're still fighting there or something, but they wouldn't be when we got there. <laughs> and the thing about it, if you didn't show up, they right. were they would be on the radio. Yeah, there was no option, right? But but at the same time, I mean, it was critical for them because they couldn't do anything else. They oh, they absolutely. needed fuel. And and what a lot of people don't realize, and and I remember being told this. For every one person that's actually in conflict, in combat with right. the enemy face-to-face, -face, right. there's seven more supporting him to be able to do what he's trying to do. Oh, absolutely. And if it hadn't been for guys like yourself, those tanks couldn't have gone right. very far because I get, what, two miles to the gallon or, or less right, or absolutely. something like that? Well, we had, you know, we had real good leadership. You know, uh, Ken Powell don't get the credit he deserves for, you know, orchestrating a very good, you know, plan for, you know, spreading everybody out, getting everything where it needed to be, when it needed to be, you know, in a tough environment, you know, that he had never been in before. And you know you what? Know? Even though I, I don't – I agree completely with you that you had good leadership. Ken sat here and said the other day he had the best people. And I just got to think it might have had something to do with a lot of them being from Lincoln County and South Mississippi. Oh, absolutely. The kind of folks you want in a foxhole with absolutely. you when you got a scrap going well, on. When you get over there, you find the majority of the people of the – you know, your Army troops and this and that over there mm -hmm. are your southern Bible Belt-type states, you know, with your Mississippis, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas. Those are your more patriotic people the in the nation today. The kind of folks that you really do and, want to have you over know, there with You know, probably 75% of the people you meet are from the southern states. Just, That's you know, interesting. That's interesting. You That's know, Georgia, Alabama, just, you know, from there to, to Texas. This makes it more of a, a reality that I want to stay in the south. You know, really. Uh, Brad, now you, you were in Kuwait. Uh, this thing is starting to wrap up. It's, it's winding down. The, mm -hmm. the, the Allied forces just overwhelmed the quote-unquote elite Iraqi army. And they did have some good equipment, right. a lot of Russian-made equipment, and some well-trained people. But the technology of the Allies, and I think also just God's grace, it was just an incredibly quick battle and war, and it was over with. Yeah, people always thought that you're – then that the Russian equipment and stuff like that was at a lot higher level than what it was, and we were very prepared. But when our planes or our tanks met up against theirs, it was no, no competition. Contest. It no was contest. just, you know, it was well, 20 Brad, you years guys, difference. You, know. you guys, after after a big part of that's over the push into Kuwait, we, we went in to some extent into uh, Iraq, but then we stopped. Right. And, and Desert Storm ended. So you – you guys, did you have to stay over there very long after the actual fighting Absolutely. start? Absolutely, because it takes just as long to get everything ready to leave as it does mm -hmm. to get it ready to mm -hmm. fight. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even longer, mm -hmm. because you have to start slowly scaling everything back. All these 
hundreds of thousands of troops and vehicles are moving back. They're moving back into the port cities, wow. you know, to load up. You know, so it takes a while. And so we was probably there longer after it was over than, than, than before it started. So uh, you and your two brothers came through it, thankfully, unscathed. Right. Uh, probably lost a little weight, but... Uh, we did. <laughs> <laughs> I understand the environment. My brother yeah. was over there during that, and he was he was talking about it was kind of. You a, didn't eat too well. You didn't eat too well, <laughs> right. and I remember him saying, "If you send me anything, send me popcorn. We yeah. have access to a microwave, and that's about it." Yeah. So, uh, uh, you guys got to come home pretty quick. I'm imagining your parents were thrilled to see their three boys come home. Right. They uh, they met us in Georgia when we got off the plane. You know, a lot of the parents and family and stuff drove over there, and they had a little ceremony over there before we got home. Awesome. Yeah, and they were just through the roof, you know. Awesome, awesome, you know, Brad. The good thing about Desert Storm was, you know, you'd had Vietnam 20, 25 years before, and there right. was a, the country was still sort of feeling, you know, guilty about the way they were treated when That's they right. come home. Exactly and right. so when we came home, we were treated very well, exceptional. Everywhere you went, it was unbelievable. You know, and I think now we have to watch because sometimes they're starting to forget a little bit about the people who's over there now. Exactly. Your people in Afghanistan, they're becoming numbers and stuff like that, you know. And, Brad, that's a good point, and that's exactly why, and that's exactly one of the reasons, maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons we're, we're doing what we're doing is we honor our veterans uh, that have worn the uniform of our country uh, during times of, of, of war. And uh, why we have a museum here, not to glorify war, not to, right. not to say that it's a— it's an exciting, fun thing, like sometimes it is on television right. and in movies. It's all about doing what, whether we agree with it politically or not, it's exactly. all about the duty of being called by your country. Right. And, and I'm grateful, let me just say, as we, we wrap this up here, I am grateful to you, and you be sure you extend that gratitude to your brothers, that the Baron boys were, were a part of that group. I know you didn't know this was going right. to happen when you guys enlisted, Absolutely. but you were ready to do your duty right. when that call came. And, you know, it's experience that we would not trade now, you know, that I think made us better people, sure. you know, better, you know, just all around. Well, let me just say, on behalf of the United States of America, uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for wearing the uniform. Um, be sure you communicate that with your brothers. <laughs> I will. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's been a treat to have you with us today, Brad. Oh, anytime, anytime. Thank you very much. No problem. A Super Talk Mississippi yeah. media production.